Reading from the 31st chapter of Numbers, starting with verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Avenge the children of Israel of the Midianites. Afterward shalt thou be gathered unto thy people. And Moses spake unto the people, saying, Arm some of yourselves unto the war, and let them go against the Midianites, and avenge the Lord of Midian. Of every tribe a thousand throughout all the tribes of Israel shall you send to the war. So they were delivered out of the thousands of Israel, a thousand of every tribe, twelve thousand armed for war. Moses sent them to the war, a thousand of every tribe, them and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, to the war with the holy instruments and the trumpets to blow in his hand. They warred against the Midianites as the Lord commanded Moses, and they slew all the males. And they slew the kings of Midian beside the rest of them that were slain, namely Evi and Rechem and Zer and Hur, Reba, five kings of Midian. Balaam also, the son of Beor, they slew with a sword. The children of Israel took all the women of Midian captives and their little ones and took the spoil of all their cattle and all their flocks and all their goods. And they burnt all their cities wherein they dwelt and all their goodly castles with fire. And they took all the spoil and all the prey, both of men and of beasts, and they brought the captives and the prey and the spoil unto Moses and Eleazar the priest, and unto the congregation of the children of Israel, unto the camp at the plains of Moab, which are by Jordan near Jericho. And Moses and Eleazar the priest and all the princes of the congregation went forth to meet them without the camp. And Moses was wroth with the officers of the host, with the captains over thousands and the captains over hundreds, which came from the battle. And Moses said unto them, Have ye saved all the women alive? Behold, these caused the children of Israel, through the counsel of Balaam, to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman that hath known man by lying with him. We've been following the journeys of the children of Israel from their slavery in Exodus to the Promised Land. They have completed their punishment of wandering in the wilderness some 40 years, and now they are prepared to enter the land. The nation of Midian, there on the borders of the land, seek to, in various ways, destroy the Israelites. They finally bring in the prophet Balaam to curse them. While he cannot curse them, he manages to get them to curse themselves by involving themselves in sin against the Lord. The Midianites, through their seducing of the children of Israel, bring upon them the punishment of the Lord. God sends a plague among his people. 23,000 are struck down by the plague. Now, as the children of Israel prepare to move on into and against the land, God, through Moses, instructs them to go to war against Midian. We could term this a war of vengeance. You notice the instruction given in verse 1 and 2. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Avenge the children of Israel of the Midianites. Vengeance because of the attack that they had made upon God's people in this way. 
and also <clears throat> vengeance against the people of the Lord, <clears throat> against these people, because, in a sense, when they attack the Lord's people, they attack the Lord himself. As in the New Testament, when <clears throat> Saul is told by Jesus, Why persecutest thou me? So it's not only vengeance for the people of God that they are to take, but it's vengeance for the Lord. And Moses changes the language. And in the third verse, Moses spake unto the people, saying, Avenge the Lord of Midian. Avenge the Lord on Midian is the meaning of the term. The term vengeance has to do with <clears throat> retribution or repaying. These nations had long been in rebellion against God, and now God repays them. <clears throat> and he repays the Midian nation, Midianite nation here first. In Deuteronomy <clears throat> 7.10, we read, God repayeth them that hate him to their face. God's providence in this world is in terms of retribution often. <clears throat> God repays those that hate him. Anne of Austria, speaking to Cardinal Richelieu, said, God does not pay at the end of every day, my Lord Cardinal, but at the end, God pays. To quote Robert G. Lee, payday Someday. God repays men and nations. He doesn't repay men in full here in this world because there's a world to come in which he will deal with men. But nations have only this world for their existence. And God repays nations in this world. This was an act of retribution, an act of vengeance. John Gerstner... <clears throat> Uh, Philadelphia Xenia Seminary says, God is a vengeful being. And this is clear because he is a holy person and he must be opposed to the unholy and the opposition must be expressed to his creatures. The way the New Testament writer quotes it in Hebrews, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. It's a righteous act as well as a vengeful act. In Genesis 15:16, you have a very remarkable statement made, a pivotal statement for the entire Bible in our understanding of these things. God is discussing with Abraham the gift of the land of Canaan to his posterity, and he says, not yet. He says that they shall come hither again in the fourth generation because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. God says, I'm going to give this nation to your posterity, Abraham, but not yet. Because the people who dwell there, the Amorites, their cup, their measure of iniquity hasn't reached its limit. It's building up. In the fourth generation, they'll hit the limit of my forbearance. And at that point, I will move your posterity into the land and punish them until it was right they must not move when it was right vengeance would come it was an act of justice 
The measure of sin fills gradually for an individual and for a nation, but it fills and there hits a limit when God moves. The outcome of the war, <clears throat> they were completely overthrown, the Midianites. The five kings are slain. All of the adult males are slain. But the women and the children are brought back along with the spoil. That's the instruction from the Lord up to that point that was followed. But you notice the execution of the women and children which follows. When they return, Moses' anger at the sparing of the women and children flares forth. In verse 14, Moses was wroth with the officers of the host. In verse 15, Moses said unto them, Have ye saved all the women alive? In verse 16, Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And there was a plague. They've already killed 23,000 through their temptation, he says. They'll only kill more. He's angered. And then he gives an order. In verse 17, Now therefore kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman that hath known man by lying with him. We're somewhat shocked by that order. I am, and I'm sure you are. Over the years, objection has been raised against the Bible, against the Lord of the Bible for this act. Augustine uh, records objection in his day, as long ago as that was. The Manichaeans of his day, a sect who denied that the Lord of the Old Testament was the same as the God of the New, they said this was among one of the cruel acts of Moses. Voltaire, Thomas Paine, these men use such arguments and instances as this for their uh, opprobrium of the Christian faith. In our own day, it's difficult to pick up a book that would not say either that uh, here certainly is an instance where the Bible isn't inspired, that we have here only what Israel thought. They thought that God was telling them to do this at best or they were wreaking their own vengeance and then attributing it to God. Uh, the books are rampant. It's difficult to pick up a book today. They wouldn't say that. The rabbinical writers, they too want to soften it. They say that, uh, Moses, that Joshua sent three letters offering terms of peace, and that he told them they could flee or they could enter into a covenant of peace or else they had the alternative of war. There's no such evidence in the Word of God for uh, this kind of thing. It's an effort to get around what the Scriptures say. And a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, there's an explicit distinction made between the nations inhabiting the land of Canaan and those surrounding the land. Those surrounding the land they can make covenants of peace with under certain conditions. But those inhabiting the land, they're told in verse 16 of Deuteronomy 20, of the cities of these people, which the Lord thy God doth give thee for an inheritance, thou shalt save alive nothing that breatheth. But thou shalt utterly destroy them, namely the Hittites and so on, and list the seven nations. In verse 18, that they teach you not to do after all their abominations which they have done unto their gods, so should ye sin against the Lord your God. In Numbers chapter 30, and in verse uh, 55 and 56, 
They're told after being instructed that they are utterly to tear down the idols and to deal with the idolaters. They're told in verse 55, If ye will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and shall vex you in the land wherein ye dwell. Moreover, it shall come to pass that I shall do unto you as I had thought to do unto them. If you weaken at this point, God says, I'll deal with you. You must not spare. We see the objection. We see the instruction. What justification can we come up with? Maybe it's folly to seek to justify the ways of God to men. But we can suggest certain aspects of justification here. As far as this was an act of God, we would not hold the Israelites responsible, in a sense, any more than we would hold that angel of death responsible who smote the firstborn child in every Egyptian home when they were brought out of Egypt. He was carrying out an instruction of the Lord. He was not responsible. This was an act of God. It was the act of a sovereign dealing with rebels. Their abominations were of a kind that the scriptures say cry out to heaven. The land, as the scripture, couldn't bear them and it vomited them out to use scriptural terminology. Archaeologists have uncovered the type of thing that Scripture has in mind. We read about them making their children pass through the fire. 1902-1903, an archaeologist by the name of MacAllister, uh, in his excavations, uncovered in these Canaanite cities in their high places earthenware jars in which the bones of infants were. Uh, these infants had been made to pass through the fire. Again, the horrible practices such as decapitation and sawing these infants in half was often found. They dug under the foundations of buildings and they found under the cornerstones and foundations of building at each corner. They would place an earthenware jar with a live infant in it. You have a reference in scripture to one of the men who builds a city and lays the foundation of the, <clears throat> with his firstborn, with the death of his firstborn. This kind of abomination, uh, not to mention the sexual idolatrous practices in the uh, worship of Astaroth, their god, as they have sacred prostitutes and so on. All of this type of thing cried out to heaven as it did in Sodom and Gomorrah earlier. And the land vomits them out. It was an act of a sovereign God dealing with rebellion, dealing with this type of thing. It was an act of a Savior. God delights in mercy. Judgment and wrath is his strange work. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But he delights in saving men. And God has acted in history to provide salvation for sinners such as you and me. This salvation was a historical process taking place over a period of time. The world had to be prepared for the Savior. Preparation was made through a nation to whom the repository of God's revelation was given. His holy word was given. 
And these people who are to be the instrument through which the world will come to a knowledge of him, these people must be preserved from such practices in order that the world might come to the knowledge of the Savior. They alone knew how God could be approached. They alone had the worship of the tabernacle, the revelation of God, which is picturing how men can be saved. They alone understood the import of the Lamb of God that we just sung about. I thought on the Lamb of God. Suppose the knowledge of the Lamb of God had been lost through involvement in the idolatrous practices of those Canaanites as the two intermingled. Then God as a Savior would have his saving purposes frustrated. It was the act of a, of a sovereign, but it was the act of a Savior, one who has saving purposes towards men and is determined that men be brought to a knowledge of his salvation. Again, it was the act of a surgeon. You have to cut out cancer. And this type of cancerous infection on the face of the earth this hotbed of iniquity and impurity had to be cut out. And when you cut out cancer, you have to get it all, every fiber of it. We say, all right, we can see maybe why God did this, why he did this strange act. But why, why use the instrument that he used? Why not do it like he did in the flood? Why not do it with a plague? Why use people for such strange work? Remember, these people need to learn how God feels about that kind of thing. This was for their interest that they be the awful instrument, that they be held to it so they'd understand how God deals with that because they must be an holy nation separated unto him. Therefore, they'll be the executioner and it'll keep them from involvement in the same kind of abominations. It did for some time. Hold them back. Again, using them was an act of a savior, one who purposed salvation for the world. We say, well, maybe we can see why God did this act and why he used the instrument that he did. But why involve the children? Why not let the children live? Read David Wilkerson's book, The Little People. Make your hair stand on end as to what little children can be imbued with. The evil that can contaminate them and the way in which it flows out. David Wilkerson in his work in the slums in New York as he tells of the work and the tremendous abominations of the little people. They were already infected, most of them. The boys would grow up to seek to take revenge for the death of their fathers. They were already infected with this kind of thing at a young age. As for the little infants, I wonder if I dare say it was an act of mercy. It was an act of necessity for the older children. Maybe on the infants, the young ones, an act of mercy. 
What happened to these children? Incidentally, the children were cut off in the flood, weren't they? What happened in, to these children? Little bitty children. In the book, What of the Unevangelized, by J. Oswald Sanders, he says, As without personal acts of theirs, infants inherited corruption from Adam, so without personal act of theirs, salvation is provided in Christ. And then he quotes the great Baptist theologian, Augustus H. Strong. There is an application to infants of the life of Christ, as there was an application to them of the death of Adam. A father whose infant child had died wrote this on the tomb of his child. Bold infidelity, turn pale and die. Beneath this stone an infant's ashes lie. Say, is it lost or saved? If death's by sin, it's sinned, for it lies here. It sinned in Adam, didn't it? Even this newborn infant sinned in Adam. If death's by sin, if death is the wages of sin, it's sinned, for here it lies. If heaven's by works, and of course it didn't, in heaven it can't appear. Oh, reason how depraved. Revere the sacred page, the knot's untied. It died, for Adam sinned. It lives, for Jesus died. The little children, we believe, went to heaven through the application to them of the death of Jesus Christ. We are puzzled at such. We guess when we talk like this, and guessing's not good. But we believe that God is merciful. We trust his mercy. What application of these principles can we make to life today? Should we apply them to modern warfare? Can we find in this instance of Israel's warfare justification for modern warfare? No. This was a particular situation. They had a limited assignment. They were to deal with the seven nations in the land here. They did not have authority to deal with the surrounding nations in the same way. This is not intended as an example. It is intended as a lesson to all of us of how God feels about sin and the fact that there will be payday someday. Modern warfare can have a biblical basis, but we wouldn't use this particular portion of Scripture to relate it to. It has an application, though, to the Christian life. <clears throat> As they were to be unmerciful on their enemies and to root them out, even the weak ones, we are to be unmerciful on our spiritual enemies, and we are to root out our sins, even those that we do not feel are too serious, even the more attractive ones we are to make no alliance with. If they did not drive them out of the land, then it would be to their detriment and to their death. And if we are not the death of our sins, our sins will be the death of us. If we do not drive our sins out, 
deal ruthlessly with them continually to the limit that we are capable in this life, our sins will drive us out. What does Romans say? If you live after the flesh, you shall die. If you indulge your sins, you shall die and go to hell. That's what it means. But if you, through the Spirit, through God's Holy Spirit dwelling within you, if you, and he's writing to Christians, if you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of your body, you shall live. It's not automatic. I put them to death, not the Spirit. He doesn't put them to death. I put them to death through the power of the Spirit. If you, through the Spirit, do mortify, that's a, that's a terrible word, do put to death the deeds of the body, your sins, you shall live. But if you make alliance with them, if you spare them, if you refuse to cut off the right hand and pluck out the right eye, deal ruthlessly even with your most precious sins, you shall die. Jesus said it's better to enter into life, halt or maim, than to having two hands be cast into hellfire, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. It has an application to us in reference to dealing with our spiritual enemies. It also has an application to our nation. What situation is our nation in? What generation is it for our nation? Are we in the fourth generation? Is our cup of iniquity getting filled up to the top? The books of the day, the films of the day, the shops in Mountain Brook with their see-through blouses, The little theater with its filthy plays. Does this cry out to God? Is the land going to vomit us out? Francis Schaeffer is one of the prophets of our day, in a sense. He has a great message for America. His message is this. God's giving us over to our sins. Before God deals with a nation and brings in payday, he, withdraw his, he withdraws his restraining operations and lets them go on in sin. He gives them over to their lusts. You read about that in Romans 1. He gave them up to their lusts. He says that's what's happened to our nation today. He says our culture and our nation is a nation under the wrath of God. Well, what hope is there? There's the hope that Christians will act as salt. That there'll be a different quality about their life that will act as a preservative in a nation that's on the verge of payday. That through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, transforming our lives, stepping out boldly, telling others the story of Christ, that God, for the sake of the remnant within, will spare our nation We'll roll back these evil forces. We'll restrain wickedness. But if salt has lost its savor, there's no hope. 
I'll just tell you, it's through groups like this gathered here that there's any hope at all for our nation. Is there a saltiness about your life? Are you a bold witness for Jesus Christ, and are you putting to death your own sins, or are you indulging them? We must pray. We must prosecute this warfare with all that we have. We must live under God. There's a message here for non-Christians also. The non-Christians are not like the people who were in the land there, the Canaanites who were to be exterminated. Rather, they are like those nations who surrounded Canaan. The instructions in reference to how those nations were to be dealt with goes like this in Deuteronomy 20. When thou comest nigh unto a city to fight against it, then proclaim peace unto it. As the overture of peace. We are commissioned to come to every non-Christian here and to offer terms of peace through Jesus Christ, the great Lamb of God who died for your sin. God loves you. He sent his Son to die for you. He makes overtures of peace. Be ye reconciled unto God, as though God did through me beseech you. Be ye reconciled. Under condition, they could make overtures of peace. Here were the conditions. It shall be, if it make thee answer of peace... And open unto thee, then shall it be that all the people that is found therein shall be tributaries unto thee, and they shall serve thee. If you're willing to be a servant of Jesus Christ, if you're willing to open unto him and be under his tutelage and him be your Lord, then he offers you peace right now. But if you will not open to him, Then shalt thou make war against it, and besiege it. And when the Lord thy God hath delivered it into thine hands, thou shalt smite every male thereof with the edge of the sword. Non-Christian, God offers peace if you'll open to him. Be his slave, him be your Lord. Put your trust in Christ who died for you. Let us bow in prayer. For the Christians present, think, are you dealing with sin in your life, or will God have to deal with you? Is there a saltiness about your life that's acting as a preservative in this city and in this nation, or are you salt that's lost its savor? Yield now in anything the Lord is speaking to you about. And for the non-Christian who wants to be a Christian, who's willing to give an answer of peace and who swing wide the door, if you mean business in your heart right now, pray like this. Lord Jesus, I have rebelled against you, but I do answer in peace. I want peace. I open the door of my heart to you. I invite you in. I'll be under your sovereignty and I'll be your slave. I trust you to forgive my sin in your great mercy through your death. Amen.